Good morning, friends. My name's Cole. Uh, it's an honor for me to get to be with you. Anytime um, I get to open God's word for God's people, um, it always is such a gift because I believe the spirit of God is here. Um, and I didn't do this during 930, but just as we were singing that um, Run to the Father song, I just, I just feel like I need to say that um, if you feel like you want to run to the Father, but you um, are afraid of what that's going to look like, his arms are open to you today. Um, they are open to you today, um, and that through the blood of his son, Jesus, um, that you come, his answer is yes, um, so feel free to, to come back. So that's for free for if that hits with any of you today. Um, so it was 1961, and President-elect John F. Kennedy gave what, what some would call his farewell address to this, his home state of Massachusetts. Um, this speech is most famously known as his city on a hill speech. As JFK knows that he's about to assume some major responsibilities as the president of the United States and that he is now leaving his home state to take up residence in Washington um, to lead our country. And it's in this speech that, that he has a few lines as well as some of the strategy or some of the characteristics that he hopes that his presidency will be known from. So this is, this is one of those lines. I think it'll, it'll hit with us today. So JFK says this, we must always consider that we shall be a city upon a hill, that the eyes of the people are upon us. A city on a hill and that all of the eyes of the people will be upon us. And he then goes on to kind of describe some of the things that he would like for his presidency and for our country to be known for. He says that he wants them to be known of courage, of judgment, of integrity, and of dedication. You see, it's in this farewell speech that, that JFK knows that this is his moment that for whatever reason, whether or not he would ascribe it to God or chance, that this is his moment in human history to lead the United States. And he's inviting them in to say, this is our moment, this is our shot. Let us be known for courage, for judgment, for integrity, for dedication. That even JFK references Matthew chapter five, where he says, where Jesus says that you will be a city on a hill. You're gonna be the light of the world, the salt of the earth that this is our moment. So why do I start there this morning? Is that Acts chapter 20, which Jeffrey, just like an absolute champion, read all those verses, is also Paul's farewell address to his church in Ephesus. And this farewell address is, direct, is, is pointed at the Ephesian elders, but it's also pointed at us this morning to say this, that friends, this is our moment. This is the time in history that God has ordained for you to be alive. That he has not given this space of time to your parents. He hasn't given it to your grandparents. He hasn't given it to your unborn children. He has given it to you. And Paul challenges the church of Ephesus and our hope that his words will challenge us today not to miss our moment not to pass the buck to somebody else, but to embrace what it means to follow Jesus in an age of unbelief. Because I think that if we're honest, this is where the tension hits. It's like, okay, this is our moment, the church, this is us, this is our time. But we all know that in 2022, we live in an age of unbelief. We live in a post-Christian society. 
We live in what some would call um, the twilight hours of Christendom, AKA Christendom is the idea of the beliefs of the church and the beliefs of the culture being congruent. And I think if anyone is paying attention that we see that there is two roads and they're diverging in opposite directions, that God is being replaced with self, that the ideas of the authority being rooted in scripture has now been placed on you, the individual. And so my idea of justice, my idea of truth versus your idea of justice and your idea of truth go in opposite directions. And so when we live in this age of unbelief, what is the church to do? So uh, there, there's a great thinker by the name of Andy Crouch, and he, he's kind of helped me think through sometimes the church's response to this. So there's kind of two camps that the, the church will sometimes respond. One of them is to condemn culture, to say culture is bad, it is wrong, the church's job is to separate itself from the culture and to point a finger, you, th- this is wrong, to condemn the culture. But then the, the other option, which is slightly more enticing, especially for the American church, is to consume culture, to say, you know what, we're just gonna become like the culture. We're gonna adapt the culture's practices in order for us to stay popular and to stay alive. And so then we, we cease to be distinct as the followers of Jesus that we've been called to be. So if we, we, but we know we don't need to condemn culture. Like we're not fighting war with culture. We also know we, we don't need to consume culture because we want to remain the people God's called us to be according to his word. What's our option? And so what I wanna present for us this morning is a third option, not of condemning or consuming, but like Jesus, influencing. That point blank right up front that our call as followers of Jesus in an age of unbelief is to influence our community for Christ. Not to condemn our community to Christ, not to consume our community to Christ, but to influence it, to to be salt and light in a dark and tasteless world. In a world of decay, in a world of darkness, that we would be the salt that preserves, that we would be the light that brightens. So how do we do it? Thankfully, Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 verses 17 through 38 tells us. So if I was to title this morning's message, it would simply be Paul's farewell address. And as we journey through his address, what I, what I think we'll see, we're gonna see three strategies implemented by Paul that he's giving to the elders, but then underneath these three strategies is Paul's posture. And so we're gonna talk about Paul's posture because here's the deal. We can implement the strategies, but if we have the wrong posture, we will miss it. And we will push ourselves further away from culture than closer to it. So three strategies, a posture underneath with, with, with the goal of you and I influencing our community for Christ in an age of unbelief. And I believe that if we do these things, that we'll seize our moment and we won't miss it. So would you pray with me before we, before we dive into the text? Lord, I thank you for every woman and every man within the sound of my voice, God, that they are not here by happenstance or chance. God, they are here by providence, that you you have seen it fit for them to be alive in this moment of history and for them to be in the room. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak through your word and it would touch us deeply. And if you would, would you pray in your seat and just ask for God to speak to you today, clearly and specifically. And if you would, would you pray for me 
that I would be helpful to you. And so, Lord, I pray that um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you and that, uh, God, my words would fall to the ground and blow away and be forgotten, but your word would remain forever and be remembered. We pray this now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So we are in the book of Acts. If you have not been in the book of Acts or don't know what the book of Acts is, I want to give you um, a telescope view and then the microscope view. I wanna give you the forest and then I wanna give you the trees. So forest first. Your Bible has 66 books in it. It's divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Your New Testament is divided into additional sections. There's four gospels or the portraits of Jesus, one book of church history, then there's 21 letters to, church, to Christians and to churches, and then one book of prophecy. We find ourselves in that one book of church history, which is the book of Acts. So it's telling us what happened following the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If I was to, to tell you three themes that run throughout all 28 chapters of the book of Acts, it would be three Gs. We've got the gospel, we've got guidance, and we've got groups. First, the gospel, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus is alive and well, that he's conquered sin and death, is being declared boldly to everyone who will listen. The gospel is being, is being, is being shared. Gospel. The second is guidance, that the Holy Spirit, the, the third person of the triune God, has been deposited into the local church for them to live on mission. The gospel, and they're being guided by the Holy Spirit. The last is groups that now this church is forming diverse ethnically, ethnically diverse communities in which all people are equal. That Greeks, Gentiles, Syrians, all joining together under the banner of Jesus Christ that is the church. You've got the gospel, you've got the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and you've got these diverse groups. And so now as the church is growing, Paul is making his way to Rome via Jerusalem, that he's bringing the gospel all the way to the ends of the earth. And it's here that he knows this is his last stop that he's ever gonna have a chance to talk to the Ephesian elders. This is his last time to tell them, this is your moment. And so Paul then tells them his strategy and his posture. Let's look in verse 18. Paul and God's word says this. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, AKA what my posture was as I lived among you the whole time. From the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So if you were to write down two words at the top here, um, this would be the posture that I think that Paul takes on. This is gonna undergird everything we talk about this morning. Is that Paul's posture was one of humility and one of courage. It was one of, of life is not about me. It is humility that, that I have gladfully submitted that God is the point and I'm just a pointer. I have gladly decided that my neighbor, his interests are more important than my interests. That Paul has decided humility that you have seen as long as I've been in Asia, I have been serving with all humility. See now, but humility isn't weakness. Humility is just rightly directed strength. 
And so he backs it up here and says that, yo, I've been doing this with tears and with trials. And then he says in verse 23 that he knows that when he goes to the next city, affliction and persecution await. Paul goes with courage, that he knows this is gonna be hard, but it's worth it. That he has gusto in his bones to go forward with the good news. That this is the posture that, that Paul has throughout his entire ministry. And it's the posture that he's wanting to deposit to the Ephesian elders. So if that's our posture, then what's the strategy? We see in verse 20 that he says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God in a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That in this verse, we see that three times Paul talks about differing ways in which he opens his mouth to declare the good news about Jesus. That he uses the word declare, teaching, testifying, and then throughout this entire farewell address, six different times, Paul is basically going to say, I have declared, I have taught, I have testified what? The gospel the good news. So strategy number one for us to influence our culture in an age of unbelief is we we must declare the gospel boldly. That Paul makes no question mark, no hesitation here. I declared, I have taught, I have testified, I have testified, I am proclaiming, I am declaring the good news about Jesus. And I love even here, it says twice in verse 20 and in verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring. Jesus, or Paul uses this phrase twice, I did not shrink. I know I've said this before, but anytime you're trying to figure out how to read the Bible, look for repetitions. When you you do that, he's emphasizing something. And so Paul says, I do not shrink from declaring. So when I begin to think about this, like I can honestly like see a turtle. Like the moment that a turtle, look at him. I mean, look at this guy, cute dude. Like the moment that a turtle notices any fear or is experiencing any stimulus in which they are afraid, what does a turtle do? They shrink away. That the Greek word that's used here carries the connotation of to draw back, to disappear, to be hesitant or to avoid out of fear. And friends, How easy is it for us when it comes to declaring the gospel of God to share our faith that like, yo, I am like a turtle. I'm shrinking back. Like, like I'm afraid. This is scary. This is hard. Or or I love it also says to be hesitant. I don't know about you guys, but when I was in school, anytime there was like a true false option, why choose one when you can put both? (laughs) Like, which one is it? Is it true or is it false? Like, our, I, I, would, I, I didn't never would write up the whole world. I would just give like that first little T with a little baby, baby make it look like an F. And like, there's this hesitation where it's like, we know like, gosh, I know that God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Like I've heard this good news about Jesus, but like, maybe that's just for me. Like that doesn't apply to everybody. Like, and there's this, this hesitation, this, this back and forth. And, and I'll just be completely honest with you. Like I'm the most anti-conflict human on planet earth. Like, like I watched, me and my wife watched Titanic a couple weeks ago and it was too much conflict for me. I was like, ah, I was like, ah like there's room on the boat. Like, like, like she can get on the door, come on. Like I hate conflict. And so just to be like completely fair with you guys, um, as I was studying this text this week, 
um, I was really convicted by this. Um, because I was about to say, I mean, I'm going to stand up here and ask, ask Northstar to declare the gospel boldly. And I had to like, do some serious reflection on like, when was the last time that I declared the gospel boldly when I wasn't wearing a microphone? Like, when was the last time I did that when I wasn't getting asked to? And so I'm just like calling a spade a spade here. I know it's hard and it's scary. And, 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 and the easier thing is to shy away, but, but Paul gives no option that if we are going to influence our culture, we must declare the gospel boldly. So I feel like we kind of have two camps in the room here, and we'll, we'll, keep, we'll get this down, is that maybe you're like, well, Cole, I know that you're telling me I need to declare the gospel. To be completely honest, if you were to ask me what is the gospel, I couldn't tell you, or I couldn't tell you coherently. And then I feel like there's another camp of us in the room where it's like, hey, I do know what the gospel is, but I certainly am not declaring it. So I wanna, I wanna clarify for both groups here quickly. So um, this is a quote by Leslie Newbigin. Leslie is a guy who is a British um, theologian. He says this, the gospel, the story of the astonishing act of God, himself in coming down to be a part of our alienated world, to endure the full horror of our rebellion against love, to take the whole burden of our guilt and shame and to lift us into communion and fellowship with himself breaks into this self-controlled search for our own happiness, shifts the center from self in its desires to God and his glory. That this is the gospel. That if I was to put it even more plainly, it's a beautiful quote. That God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. That he is holy, perfect, and blameless. And he created you for a relationship with himself. But in our sin, that we have chosen life apart from God, that it looks different for everybody, but we have chosen to go our own way, to choose our own life over God's life. And this separation of sin will cause death, an eternal death separated from God. But God in his love and in his mercy sent Christ to live a perfect life to die a death that we deserve and to rise again victorious over sin and death forever. And that if we would bind ourselves to Christ, that we would live forever. That Jesus had no sin to die for and he died for our sin. That we would know him both now and for eternity. It's the gospel. It's the good news that, the, that God of the universe came to save sinners like us in order that we would be in fellowship with him now and forever. And it's the, it's the story of the early church. It's the story of North Star. It's been the story of Christians for as long as there has been. So that's what the gospel is. But then for if we do know it and we're afraid to declare it, I want, I want to help us with that in a really practical way today. Paul uses this word to testify um, a couple of different times in the passage um, and, and I think what could be helpful for us, I, I've shared this before, but I'm, um, I'm all about John Grisham novels. Um, I'm on my way to make, I'm trying to make my way through every single one of them. Um, he's actually coming out with a new one in October. I'm all about it. And basically, if you're not familiar with Mr. Grisham, he is basically like they're law thrillers. Um, it's always, you got a courtroom, judge, jury, lawyers, it's a blast. And in every single one of the books, just about, they're fairly similar, is, sorry, Mr. Grisham, is, um, is there is a witness who um, sits in the jury box 
And the lawyer basically says, hey, now I just need you to tell everyone here, what did you see? What did you hear? And what did you experience? Why don't, just go ahead, tell us. And then they go and they testify. They just tell of what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've experienced. They're not an expert in any field. They're not um, some special doctor who has this, that, and the other. No, no, no. They, They are just someone who has witnessed something, and now they are testifying to what they have seen, heard, or experienced. And so if you are afraid of sharing the gospel, may I just encourage you today, you don't need to be an expert. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to be on a church staff. You don't need to know Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. You just need to testify. You just need to share of what God has done in your life, what you've heard from him, what you've seen of him, and what you have experienced. And so, to, once again, I'm gonna, we're taking down the cookies to the lowest shelf here. I want to encourage us this week to simply start at home. I want us to declare the gospel of God boldly at home. So what, what this looks like is, Dad, Pick out some time this week to tell your kids of how God has changed your life. Take some time this week just to share, hey, I am not perfect, but the direction of my life is heading towards Jesus, and I was once here. And then I experienced the goodness of Jesus, and now I am here. I'm not doing it perfectly, not claiming to do it perfectly, but this is the direction of my life. I am declaring, I am testifying to the gospel to you. Wife, declare the gospel boldly to your husband this week. Make out some time. Take, take some time to say, hey, this is how Jesus changed my life. Make some time with your roommate. Hey, roommate, I just wanna share with you, this is how God changed my life. Or if you live alone, who's your closest friend? Call him. Let's start at home. Cole, this is uncomfortable. Courage, humility. I'm not asking you to yell at someone's throat and to once again condemn culture or consume culture. Courage and humility. Let's, let's keep moving in the text as Paul continues in his farewell address. He says in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to the care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, I know that, my de- that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among our own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So in this second move of Paul's farewell address, He repeats, once again, repetition, twice, pay careful attention. Or another translation would say, be on guard. And then in verse 31, he says, therefore, be alert. That Paul's call to the Ephesian elders is the call to us today is to pay attention and be careful. Now, be careful. Like, Paul, like, we're not, you know, riding a bike without a helmet. Like, like, why are you telling us to be careful? He says it in verse 29 that there are fierce wolves that will come in among you speaking twisted things. 
that, that friends, there is, this is just like the reality is that we, there is a spiritual war going on for your souls. That, your, that our faith has an enemy and an enemy that, that longs to see you shy away and to shrink down and to not declare and that is coming to destroy us. We are in a spiritual battle. And we, we don't like to use that terminology because it makes us uncomfortable, but there's a, um, a missionary by the name of Ralph Winter and a, and a pastor by the name of John Piper who have helped me think through this. This is not original to me. Um, is he talks about a wartime mentality. That, that we, uh, we can think about it when, if a nation is in wartime, the way that they leverage their resources, the way that they use um, their money, the way that people act during, a, during wartime is much different than how the country operates during peacetime, during prosperity. And so the, the question becomes is are we operating in a peacetime mentality or are we operating in a wartime mentality? That you can think about it this way. Are, 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 is your faith a cruise ship or is it a warship? That, that a cruise ship is designed for your comfort, convenience, luxury, excuse me, we need more on deck three. <laughs> Whereas in a warship is designed not just to float like aimlessly throughout sea, but a warship is heading somewhere, that it's got its head on a swivel, seeing what is coming to attack us in order that we may accomplish the mission at hand. Friends, do you have a cruise ship Christianity or a warship Christianity? Is God simply the butler on the other end to make you more comfortable or is God at command center saying, go here, guard here, shoot here? Because, second time, Titanic. Cruise ship Christianity is the Titanic. It's not equipped to handle the icebergs. And also, we've talked about this before, God has not promised us an easy life. Gosh, it's full of pain, and honestly, unexplainable pain. Like, like stuff that no one deserves happens to them. Like, it's, it's, it's not fair, like, like, but, but fair, whatever that means. Like, but God, I'm just saying, God has not promised us an easy life but he has promised us a life of mission and a life of purpose. Cruise ship, worship. And so the call from this passage to us today is to wake up, to wake up one, and then point number two, strategy to influence your community for Christ, is to pick a fight with evil. We don't talk about picking fights much. You're always told like, don't fight. I'm encouraging you to pick a fight, specifically with evil. And our word for evil is sin. And so for maybe for you this morning, like your call from this, this text to be careful, to pay attention, to be alert, is that you need to pick a fight with your passivity towards faith. That you need to pick a fight towards, ah, you know, prayer, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Pick a fight with it. Or maybe it's that you need to pick a fight with your lingering addiction to pornography. That it's, that it's not acceptable, that those are image bearers that you're using for your, uh, it, it's exploitation at its finest. Pick a fight with it. Or maybe you need to pick a fight with gossip in your friend group, that it's, you're, not, you're gonna take a stand, that it's not okay. You're gonna pick a fight with materialism of just accumulating more stuff to make ourselves feel better and it just makes us feel worse. Or maybe you need to pick a fight with overconsumption of alcohol or pick a fight with whatever it may be, but pick a fight. This is our moment Let's not miss it. And once again, we don't do this aggressively. We do this with courage. We do this with humility. And if you notice, I said pick a fight with your sin, not your neighbor's sin. 
So like, like, like this is for you, not for, not for the spouse. Like this is for you. Pick, pick that fight. Don't pick the other one. I don't want to deal with those fights. Um, so, and then Paul uh, goes on to finish his farewell address um, in verse 32. He says, and now I commend you to God into the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That Paul is to commend, is giving the Ephesian elders over to the Lord. And of course, they've always belonged to God, but he's saying from a responsibility standpoint. You can almost think about it as a, a, a couple getting married and the the dad of the bride, you know, he's standing there, walks her down the aisles there. And, and then the pastor who's residing over says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And his response, her mother and I. And they kind of like do this awkward like exchange and maybe hold the wrist and put it over, give it to the groom. And it's this giving over, commending the bride over to the groom. And the same thing, Paul is commending them over. He's giving away his responsibility to the Ephesian elders that this is their moment. This is their opportunity. And so strategy number three that must be undergirded with courage and humility is that we must take responsibility. That we have got to be willing to own our faith. That you can't, in the same way that you rent or lease a car, you cannot rent and lease a faith. You gotta own it. It's gotta be yours. We must take responsibility. So to kind of close our service today, I have one more story and illustration I'm actually gonna ask you to participate with me. Um, so growing up in this area, I went to church at Ackworth United Methodist Church and um, I used to have Sunday school with a, with a lady by the name of Miss Fanny B. McClure. Um, Fanny B. is like, she... We're talking about most godly saints on planet Earth. Like, she's absolute hero. Like, I think the sanctuary is named after her. She's terrific. So I had Sunday school class with Fanny B, and um, I used to snap the pencils on my forehead. Um, she was not very happy about that all the time. Um, and so I even had to, like, bring all the pencils back. I remember my mom being like, you are bringing those back to Miss Fanny B. It was a great, great time. Um, so whenever she taught us to pray in Sunday school, um, she would tell us to clasp our hands, to, to fold our hands together and you know, I always kind of thought like, well, maybe this is just so I won't like slap my neighbor um, or just like to stay focused. But I learned this past week that the, the practice of folding and clasping your hands actually has some pretty significant Christian history tied to it. Um, so the, in the first century, when Christians were, were just starting, you know, gospel guidance groups and persecution began to arise. And it's kind of one of those things that if you threatened the local government, you were gonna be arrested for your faith. So the earliest Christian creed was three words. Jesus is Lord. And it was this proclamation of, of the creed in which you would be arrested. And so the earliest church followers, as they would prepare to be arrested, would clasp their hands, would fold them together in preparing to be arrested. And they would say, are you a Jesus person, and they would respond, Jesus is Lord, and they would be arrested. That they stood in a moment of fear and trembling, and they declared the gospel boldly, Jesus is Lord. 
that not only that, but they were picking a fight with evil. Like, come on, take me to the jail cell. Jesus is Lord. And then probably most poignantly, they were taking full responsibility for their faith. They weren't gonna let this pass on to the next generation or pass on to the neighbor. I'm sure Paul will do it. Like, they'll, they'll take care of it. No, 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 no. Jesus is Lord. And so I thought it would be a great way for us to finish our service today is that if you would be willing, if you would say, Cole, I, I, I want in on this fight. I do wanna influence my culture, my community in an age of unbelief. I would just invite you as a physical sign of that to clasp your hands. And I'm, I'm gonna pray. And then I would love if we recited the Lord's prayer together. The earliest prayer that was echoed from the mouth of our Lord as it's recorded in the book of Matthew. So if you would be willing, if you say today, I wanna, I wanna do that again, would you, would you clasp your hands before you? And let's pray. Lord, we tremble before your greatness and your power. And Lord, we uh, just declare our need for you that where we live in an age of unbelief, but we want to stand today as a church to declare your gospel. So Holy Spirit, would you grant us courage and may we humble ourselves before you. And Lord, we thank you for the prayer that you taught us to pray, which says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debted against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, both now and forever. Amen.